0: Hey everyone, good to see you. So I'm looking at that video and I'm thinking, I just wanna go swimming with dolphins or I wanna like go on a vacation or something. Sorry, I was kind of zoning out when I was watching that. It looks beautiful, doesn't it? So glad to be back with you again for uh, this unforgettable series. This has been uh, a real joy for me to be back with you. And what I wanna talk about is the great adventure The adventures that God is actually calling us, inviting us into. Now, the strange irony of all of this is that as I've traveled around the United States, I have met a lot of people in different churches who find that their experience of Christianity is the antithesis of a great adventure. They're pretty much bored and underwhelmed. They don't feel this sense of jumping in on an adventure. They feel this sense of sort of repetitious boredom. Many of you know that uh, last year I kind of stepped into one of the adventures of my life. I left the security of Willow Creek and uh, and went to plant a church. Went down to an area, Nashville, Tennessee, where there are uh, 21 universities and colleges, 100,000 college students, the most unchurched age group in America. And we went and we planted two churches out of my living room. We kind of grew out of that space and then we planted in two buildings. And then we are now about to go to four services in a couple of weeks. And then next year, we're planning two more campuses. And so we've been having a lot of fun. Yeah. i, I got to tell you, you guys have been such an encouragement to me. And uh, most weekends, uh, after the, one of the services, someone stops me and says, hey, we're from Northridge. We're on our way to Florida. We just thought we'd come through and and say hey. And it just kind of feels like, with you guys, it just feels like families coming to check on us, you know? And it just feels really great. So I appreciate your encouragement. I appreciate your support. Church of the City would not be what it is without the love and support of Northridge. So thank you really very much for that. You know, now, as I've been thinking about planting churches, it's so different going from a church of 26,000 people to, you know, like just a couple of people in a living room. But it sort of reduces church all the way back to the most primal, the beginning of something. And all of the things that you take for granted great facilities and technology and staff and people and money and all, like all of these kind of things, right? You start right from the absolute beginning where you're trying to talk someone into joining you who's not even a Christian yet. And you're like, ah, don't worry about that. Just come and help us build the church, you know? And we're sort of doing this over and over again, and it's made me think a little bit about the way that the church began. When, when, When Jesus was kind of building his team so that on Acts, in Acts chapter two, when the church began, the church that we are ultimately a part of, it all began in the upper room, Jesus did all of the pre-work. He did all of the, you know, getting the teams ready, put his launch team together, and then handed it over, and, uh, and then the Holy Spirit came, and, and all of that, right? So what I want to do is I want to talk about the four meetings that Jesus had between the time of the resurrection and the time of the ascension. You know how long that was, between the resurrection and the ascension? Anyone know? That's right, 40 days. Yeah, it was 40 days between the the resurrection and then the ascension. Now, if you only had 40 days to build your launch team and to train up your people and recruit the ones that were going to launch the church, how would you spend your 40 days? I mean, if you were Jesus and you had just lived, died, rose again, what would be the most strategic way to leverage that 40 days? I'll tell you what I would have done. I would have gone to Rome, which was the central power of the day, and I would have gone to the largest Colosseum that I could find. You know, the, the Colosseum from the movie Gladiator, that was not built yet. That was built 70 years after Jesus. But there were other big Colosseums. And I think I would have gone to Rome. I would have gone to a Colosseum where there's 50,000 people watching gladiators fight it out. I would have walked down in the middle with my resurrected body. And when tra- someone tried to stab me, I'd be like, oh, that didn't work, did it? And then I'd look up at Caesar and I'd say, guess who's back, back again, JC's back, you know? I mean, that would seem to make sense, right? I would go get in front of Pilate and I'd be like, remember me from a couple of days ago? You know, I, I would go and go get in front of Herod and go, sorry your plans didn't work out, mate, but I'm back, you know? I mean, that would seem to make sense. You would, you would find the largest crowd, the largest group possible, so you could leverage the platform that you had. Get in front of as many people as you possibly can so that you can maximize the impact of the resurrection. That would make sense to me. But what Jesus did with this time is a fascinating insight into the heart of God. Now, what I want you to do, As long as you turn with me to Luke 24, we are going to, first of all, see an encounter. One of the first meetings that Jesus had in these 40 days is he went to find a couple of people who were leaving Jerusalem. Luke 24 is the story of the road to Emmaus. It's two disciples, the, the Scriptures say, not part of the 12. One, his name is Cleopas. Many scholars believe that it was probably his wife that was, that was not named. Now, if it's Cleopas, then there's a good chance his wife was Mary. Mary was one of the people that was standing by the cross when Jesus died. Let's just say it was. So you've got Cleopas and you've got Mary and they're walking away from Jerusalem. Now, they're, they're despondent. They're, they're, their heads are hanging low and then Jesus walks up. They don't recognize it's Jesus. So the three of them are walking along and, and Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, you know, we're talking about what just happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus is like, what, what, do you, what happened in Jerusalem? And they must have been thinking, what do you, live under a rock? Jesus would be like, well, kind of. I had it moved and then came out, you know, but uh, not anymore at least, you know. So he's like, what things? And they're going, well, you know, like there's this, all this stuff that went down in Jerusalem. And, and, and we thought that, you know, this Messiah was going to come. And, and then they, they shared, let's pick it up in verse 19. They say... He, Jesus, was a prophet powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. Now, the real key to understanding this passage is actually not in the text, but it's in the context. There are some things that first century Jews would have understood clearly about this passage here that those of us in the 21st century just kind of skip over, we just miss. You see, this phrase here, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, was used about someone else before Jesus. This was not the phrase that was used for Jesus alone. You see, a 100 years before Jesus was on earth, there was a military leader by the name of Judas Maccabeus, now, uh, Hollywood has discussed for some time about doing a major motion picture uh, on the life of Judas Maccabeus, and at some point, I think that probably will happen, and when you see it, you'll be like, oh yeah, I heard about that. Now, this all went down between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is uh, recorded in a, a bunch of books that are not part of the canon of Scripture, but they are written in the same time period. Historians look at them as being credible. There's First and Second Maccabees. This is the the account of the Maccabean Revolt. Judas Maccabeus led the Maccabean Revolt. So the Jews were oppressed, and then this guy burst onto the scene. He was the son of a priest, and he managed to inspire people to overthrow and bring freedom for the Jews. Now, uh, Jews still celebrate this every single December. This is what is celebrated at Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the celebration of Judas Maccabeus leading the Maccabean Revolt. Now, uh, let, me, let me show you a picture. This is kind of like a, an artist's rendering of uh, Judas Maccabeus. Now, I have not managed to find this in any uh, historical documents at this point, but I'm absolutely certain that he rode this horse, he wore a kilt, and half of his face was painted blue, right? Right? And then he would look out over all of the other Jews and they're getting ready to go into battle. And he would say, we'll fight, fight for Scotland and Jerusalem and your family. You know? And then he would shout, freedom! And then they would shout, that was so uninspiring. He would shout freedom and they would shout, Exactly, they would shout freedom, freedom for the Jews. You see, this guy was powerful in word. And he managed to be able to be, as like the William Wallace of the Jews, he managed to be able to stir a bunch of untrained men to become this militia, to become this group of people that would bring about freedom. I've actually got a, a, a direct translation from the book of Maccabees. This is a quote from, uh, this is one of his rousing battle cries, okay? Like, you just imagine this. You're getting ready to go into battle. Maybe you're like going, no, we'll run and we'll live. You know, and he's like, no. And then he says this. Gird yourselves and be valiant men and be ready against the morning, that you may fight with these nations that are assembled against us to destroy us in our sanctuary. For it is better for us to die in battle than to see the evils of our nation and the holies. Nevertheless, as it shall be the will of God in heaven, so be it done. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Isn't it? Straight straight from the book of first Maccabees, this is the battle cry. And then afterwards they're like, Freedom. And then they all went in and, and this was the Maccabean Revolt. It brought a hundred years of freedom for the Jews. Right? So this guy, Judas Maccabeus, he was known as the hammer, not, you know, you can't touch this, but, but the original, original hammer, right? So, so he bursts onto the scene, he brings all kinds of freedom for the Jews, he's powerful in word and deed. They say he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. So Jewish boys, Jewish girls, they all grew up under this narrative of the hammer, then Jesus bursts onto the scene. They all know that the Messiah is coming, right? And Jesus bursts onto the scene, and they're like, here we go, people. It's hammer 2.0, right? <laughs> hammer, hammer is back, and, uh, and he is going to lead a, a military revolt. He is going to set us free. You see, in the first century, the Jews are under oppression by the Romans, and they want freedom again. They want freedom for God's people. So they see Jesus. He bursts onto the scene. And he's powerful in word. I mean, he's teaching the Torah and a bunch of PhD, a bunch of teachers of the law in Torah. They stand up and they say, well, Jesus, what about this? And he goes, well, what about this? And they say, I don't know. Okay, sit down, you know. And that, this happens over and over again. And then he's powerful indeed on the, the shores of the, uh, the uh, Sea of Galilee. 5,000 men, probably 20,000 people. He feeds them all with just some loaves and fish. Or when he's near the pool of Bethesda, he sees some dude who hasn't been able to walk for 38 years, and he goes, listen, mate, stand up and walk, and he does. And There's someone else who can't see, and he hocks a loogie, and he makes a little bit of blood, uh, mud and puts it on his eyes, and then all of a sudden, whoa, he can see, you know? He's not just powerful in word, but he's powerful indeed. And the Jews are looking on and going, here we go. Judas Maccabeus is back, and he's about to set us free. And they're watching this. They know how the narrative's gonna end. You know, this whole crucifixion thing, like, yeah, whatever, you just wait to see what happens when Jesus opens up a can, right? You know, like, this is all gonna happen. And, and so they, 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 they nail him to a cross and they're like, the story's not over, you know? And then he dies. And they're like, this is not how it should be. This is not what was supposed to happen here. And, and there are these two that have watched all this happen and now all hope is gone and they're walking away. We see in these four words, in, in verse 21, but we had hoped. We had hoped he was the one that was gonna redeem Israel. You know what that feels like, right? When you hope for something and then what reality is, the, the middle of that is disappointment. Disappointment. And these two, by by mere virtue of walking away from Jerusalem, they were abandoning the post. They were abandoning the mission and they were getting out of town and they were leaving. It was over. This didn't work. You know what it's like to feel disappointment? Some of you are looking around your life and you're going, this is not how I wanted things to turn out. Maybe something happened in your marriage and it ended and you're like, "This this was not what I wanted, or some sort of other relational complexity with your, your son or your daughter or your parenting, like, I just wanted us to have a great relationship and we don't, it's awkward and complicated. So maybe some of you lost your job or there's some sort of financial challenge or your home was foreclosed on or there's some kind of health issue that has fallen on someone that you love and you're like, this is not what I wanted. This is not how I wanted things to play out. And you find yourself in this intersection just disappointed with the way that life has played out. What's the heart of Jesus towards people that are disappointed and giving up? I mean, I know we celebrate the faithful, and that's good, right? We celebrate people being faithful. But of all the people that Jesus could go and find in his 40 days, he goes to chase down a couple of unfaithful. He goes to chase down a couple of people who were cutting out of town and they have given up. And what a picture of the heart of God when you see two people walking away and then you see God walking away with them. Some of you are deeply discouraged and you're wondering if God is just mad at you. Here is a picture of the heart of God walking away with people who are discouraged. Now, some of you know how the story ends with with these two. They end up getting to their home. They invite Jesus to come on in, and then they sit down. They still don't know it's Jesus. And then they say, why don't you break the bread? Now, some historians think it's this. This is really cool, right? In the first century, everyone had long sleeves, right? Right? And so when he sat down at the table, is it possible that when he sits down, he bends his elbows and his sleeves pull back and he breaks the bread and this is the first time they see the scars in his hands. And it's then that they say, Jesus. Don't you think it's strange that they didn't recognize him before then? I mean, how, how is that possible? Jesus walk along with them going, anytime now, you're gonna, you're gonna realize, you know, they don't recognize his voice tone, you know, the way he grooms his beard, like they're not noticing all of this and it's not until then that they recognize him. Is it possible that they were so stuck in the disappointment of the circumstances of their life? They didn't even expect Jesus to be there. The last person they expected to be there was God. Maybe some of us get so consumed by the disappointing circumstances of our lives, we don't even recognize that Jesus is walking right with us. And what does he wanna do? He wants to chase us down. He wants to look us in the eye and he wants to call us back into the move of God. The unforgettable truth for you if you are disappointed is that the story's not over yet you are not done and Jesus is coming to chase you down to call you back in second person that Jesus went to find was Thomas now we don't know him just as Thomas do we we know him as doubting Thomas yeah when we get to heaven don't bring that up I think he's going to be really sensitive about it you're gonna get an eye roll or something, you know? Like, don't. How would you like to be like known throughout all of human history by one moment? Right? Here's the interesting thing about Tom. So, in John 11, Thomas is the one that's saying, "Let's just go back to Judea, and if we die, then let's all go down together." He's the one that's going. If we die, that's fine. Let's like, like let's believe for this thing. A couple of chapters later in chapter 20, verse 25, Thomas famously says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, four words, I will not believe. Who does that? Who's like willing to die one minute and the next is not even sure if any of this is true? Who does that? I do that. I mean, is this, is this safe enough place for me to admit that I am astonished at my ability to doubt? I mean, I am good at that. that. There are some undeniable things that God has done in my life. I mean, there has been answers to prayer that are so specific that I just have this sense, surely God is in our midst. And a couple of days later, something doesn't work out like I wanted it to, and I'm thinking, maybe I'm just making all of this up. I mean, anyone else feel like this? I, I, I have these like mountaintop experiences and I have these deep valleys and I feel like this fickle human being. Now, I know that we don't talk about this a lot in church, do we? I mean, we see each other in the lobby. It's like, how you doing? Great, God is good. How you doing? Oh, so good. Yeah, yeah, God is just great, you know? I mean, our conversations normally aren't, you know, how you doing? Well, I'm not sure God's real. How How you doing? We, we, we don't talk about doubt a lot. What is the attitude of Jesus towards one who doubts? What does Jesus do to people who doubt? Of all the people that Jesus could put on his launch team for the church, he goes and finds someone who doesn't believe. I mean, that doesn't seem like a great strategy, doesn't it? Wouldn't you want people that are really like, we're in this with you, Jesus? He's finding a guy going, I'm not sure this is true. Now, we live in a cynical world. We live in a world of of sarcasm and suspicion and unbelief, and it's difficult to keep hope alive. What does Jesus do with Thomas. He takes a guy who's not sure if he believes and he turns him into someone who's willing to die for what he believes. Little known fact about Thomas. Thomas is the only apostle to preach outside of the Roman Empire. Thomas goes to India and he plants churches all over India. I have, some fri- I have a friend whose parents were born in India and her last name is Thomas. And she was telling me it is a direct connection all the way to the apostle Thomas who planted churches in India. Now, Thomas... Ultimately, was executed for his love for Jesus. What does Jesus do with doubters? He turns them into people who believe so much they're willing to die for what they believe. And we have the audacity to call him doubting Thomas. He should be Thomas the hero, Thomas the church planner, Thomas the the pioneer. Thomas the church martyr That's who Thomas is That's what God does with doubters And he put him on his team You see the unforgettable truth that you need to know Is if you find yourself Having doubt You're in great company One of the greatest church planners In human history Was a guy who wrestled with doubt And look at what God did through him The Third encounter that Jesus had was with Peter. Can you imagine that one? I mean, Jesus is saying, listen, Pete, you are going to deny me three times. He goes, there's absolutely no way. I'm, I'm not going to. I, I am sure, like I, I am absolutely in this. And then in the time of testing, in the very area that he was so confident that he would not fail in was the very area that he did fail in. Can you imagine the level of shame that Peter felt? I mean, just on the other side of of denying Jesus, can you imagine he's walking away and he's feeling his soul just collapse inside of him? This is not the person that I wanted to be. The last three years of seeing Jesus do all kinds of amazing things and open the scriptures and all of that, what does it even mean in the time of testing I just collapse under pressure? So Jesus uses his 40 days to go and find him. And where does he find him? He finds him back where they met, fishing. Sometimes I just kind of imagine, like Peter is walking back in and he looks at Jesus and they look over at the water and Peter's feeling this, yeah, I know, we walked on that water together and my character wasn't strong enough my convictions weren't deep enough and I failed I can imagine Jesus just looking at Peter and Peter like looking at the ground and then he lifts his eyes and he looks into eyes of compassion I have a friend a few years ago this guy you need to know this guy was the most influential person in my life spiritually in my entire teenage years in fact, the very reason I'm a pastor is because of how he spoke to me, how he modeled it. He, the way he worshipped, the way he read the scriptures, the way he prayed. His passion for the pursuit of Jesus was so inspiring to me, I just watched him and said, I want to be like this guy. And throughout my teenage years, he had such an impact on me. Ultimately, I'm in America today because he told me, don't buy a house here, take the money and go see the world. I'd never been outside of Australia and I took the money that I was gonna use for a down payment on a house and I went to America. I went and had a look around the rest of the world and now I'm living in the US as a result of God speaking through this guy. A couple of years ago, I hear that he has left his wife and run off with another woman and I'm thinking this cannot possibly be true so I call him and he answers the phone And I immediately know it is true And I'm talking to him and I'm like I, I, I can't believe this And I could tell that he had such a sense of shame Particularly around me I was his disciple, I was his protege He had really poured his life into me And I was so discouraged That he had done this but I pulled myself together in this phone call and I said to him, listen, man, this, this recent decisions that you have made do not negate how God has spoken through you in my life. My life has been drastically changed because of what you have done in my life, the way God has spoken through you. And these decisions do not have to define you. And he's like, yeah, maybe. A couple of weeks later, I call him again. He answers the phone, he says this, have you been praying for me? I said, yes. He goes, I know I can feel it. It's like really annoyed, you know. He said to me, I really miss being in the presence of Jesus. We kept talking over the course of the next several weeks. After a month or two, I called him one day and he said, I've broken off and I've gone back to my wife, and we are starting to repair our marriage. So I said to him, why don't you come see me? You and your wife come over and visit me in the, in the U.S. I'd just love to see you. I'd love to be with you. He said, well, maybe. We'll see if we can do it. A couple of weeks later, I get an email from him saying, we want to come visit. What about these dates? I'm thinking, that's great. So I'm thinking to myself, if he could meet anyone in America, who would I want him to meet? This is a strange thing about being an immigrant in this country, is that I'm filled with wonder with America. Like, I really am. Like, every day I wake up going, I'm living in America. <laughs> like, it's, it's really astonishing to me. I know you find it hard to understand because you all were born here and all that, but, but I'm really astonished by it. I've, I've got to meet some really incredible people. I've got to do a bunch of really amazing things. Sometimes I just feel like Forrest Gump over here. Like, it's just, <laughs> it's just amazing to me. So I start thinking to myself, if, if I could have my friend from Australia meet anyone in America, who would I want him to meet? And I thought about this guy, and I'd read one of his books, and he wrote this book about how he had cheated on his wife more than 20 years ago, and then he had repented, he had reconciled back with her, he had a collection of godly people that were around him that helped him go through a, an official sort of restoration process. And since then, not only has he spoken about that issue very openly, but he is also, uh, you know, God has built an incredible platform for him to talk about leadership and the Word of God and all kinds of things. And I was just thinking about him, you know, it makes sense, right? I'm thinking, this happened to him, and look at how God is using him. I'm thinking, I would love him to meet this guy. Now, the problem is, I didn't know anything about this guy. I didn't even know if he was alive or dead, right? I I just read his book several years ago, knew nothing about him. A couple of days later, this is when I was in Chicago, someone emails me and says, we're having a conference at our church in a couple of weeks, and we've invited this author to come in. And would you be interested in picking him up from the airport? I'm thinking, maybe, you know. So I look at the date, and it's the exact date that my friend is over here from Australia. So I call him, and I say, All right, you're not going to believe this, right? But I was just kind of going, if you could meet anyone, this is who I want you to meet. He said, What's his name? And I told him, and he goes, Oh, no. He said, Yesterday, I got a book from my attorney, who's a Christian, by that guy. And I've been reading it, and it's been tearing me apart. And I said, Well, you're going to meet him. So he comes over, and he's in my car. And we pick up this guy. And like few times that I can remember in my life, I just felt like time just stood still. And there was this encounter between these two men who looked at each other, painfully acquainted with their own ability to fail. And he looks at my friend and he says, story's not over, man. God is not done with you yet. And I thought, what a picture of the grace and the kindness of God. What a picture of a trophy of God's goodness that he takes broken people and he uses them to build the kingdom. So we, this is this meeting and I'm just driving my car, going, you know, like listening to the whole thing. And then we drop him off and then we go out to Starbucks and I'm looking at my friend and I said, do you know what just happened? I said, God is so committed to you understanding that he has plans and purposes and things that he wants to do with your life. He's so committed to this that he's taken someone from the other side of the world, from another continent, and he's organized a meeting for these two people to come together so that he could say to you, I am not done with you yet. what Jesus does and some of you have made mistakes in your life you've done things that you're ashamed of and you feel like because of that you are now unqualified or disqualified from being used by God and the unforgettable thing that you need to hear today is that the very church was built upon someone who failed Jesus said, on this rock, Peter, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. He could have chosen a guy that didn't screw up at all. He chose a guy who led him down to build the church and Jesus is still in the business of doing that today. That's what he does. All right. Last last group, last meeting that Jesus has is with the disciples in John 20. Verse 19, it says this. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. These guys were afraid. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After this, he showed him his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now, of all the people that Jesus could put on his launch team, he went and found a couple who were disappointed, chased them down. He went and found someone he didn't really believe and he doubted, He went and found someone who had failed and then he found a couple who were fearful. They were afraid of what this might mean. When I was growing up, the bottom end of Australia in this rural community, it was historically a volcanic area. So uh, in certain areas, in certain fields, there'd just be a big hole in the middle of the field, filled with water. You've seen these sinkholes before. Sometimes they're half a mile deep or a mile deep and scuba divers go down and explore them and all that. Well, me and my mates used to go to this sinkhole, and we would swim and do backflips off of rocks and all that, and generally try to show off in front of girls, right? So there was this one rock that was really, really, really high up, and it had the initials I-R painted on it. You know what we called it? I-R. We're pretty creative in Australia. So there's this one day, we have never heard of anyone jumping off this rock. There's this one day, a guy in my group, his name's uh, Craig, he says, I'm going to jump off IR." We all say, you will surely die. He says, no, I'm gonna do it. So he goes all the way up to the top of this rock. He looks around, he goes, see it?" Ah!" splash. He goes down into the water, goes deep down. And then what seemed like eternity, the water was just still. Then all of a sudden we see these two white knuckles and a head, he's like, yeah, we're like, you are the man. The girls followed him around for a month because of that one jump. Which made the rest of us kind of insecure, you know? We're like, I could have done that, you know? So he does it again, and then other guys in my group do it as well. Now, here's the thing. I never actually jumped off IR, but everyone assumed that I did, and I was okay with that. That, that, was, that was fine. Around town, people would go, hey, aren't you guys the ones that jump off IR? And I'd be like, why, yes, we are. We are, that's... <laughs> That's what we do, you know? We had leather jackets made up with IR. Well, we didn't really, but that would have been cool if we'd done that. So there's this one day we're swimming, right? And uh, people are jumping off IR, and, and this girl looks at me and she goes, hey, have you jumped off IR today? And I said, you know what, uh, today I haven't actually. No, I, 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 my lower back's a little stiff, and I've just decided that uh, today I wasn't going to. And she goes, it's funny, I don't think I've ever seen you jump off IR. I'm like, do you not come here very often? Like what? Then she says to me, have you ever jumped off IR? I started to panic, right? I'm like, well, define jumped. (laughs) She says, I don't believe it. Darren hasn't jumped off IR. Darren hasn't jumped off IR. And people start looking around, you know. I hear someone go, I know grandparents that have jumped off IR, you know. (laughs) I didn't know what to say. And then all of a sudden, something came to me, maybe from heaven. I looked her back in the eye and I said, shut up. (laughs) She said even louder, Darren hasn't jumped off IR. And I'm like, all right, all right, all right, I'll do it. So I climb up to the top of IR and I look around, there's... Twelve or 14,000 people watching. (laughs) So I make the mistake of looking down. When the clouds cleared, I could see the water. (laughs) So my brain said to my body, jump. My body said, no way, you jump. (laughs) And I was absolutely paralyzed with fear. And it was, I just wanna confess to you, it was only pride. It was only pride because a hush came across the crowd and a six-year-old girl goes, just jump, you wuss. (laughs) So then I just jump. (laughs) Splash! I go down into the water. Now, I didn't really notice that when everyone else jumped off of IR, they had their arms by their side like this. I'm not sure if I was trying to slow myself down or what it was. But when I hit the water, it made this smack sound. So instead of everyone saying, cool, they said, ooh. And I come up out of the water, and my arms are all red, right? And they're like, did that hurt? I said, no. They said, look at your arms. I said, that's sunburn. But you know what? I jumped off IR. Yes, I did. Let it be known among the nations that I jumped off IR. And some of us are standing on the edge of what God is calling us to do and we're afraid. Some of us are standing on the edge and we feel as though the disappointments in our lives and the things that have gone down, which are not what we hoped, are preventing us from jumping. Some of us, our doubt is paralyzing us. Some of us, our failures, the things that we have done, the choices that we have made, make us feel like God cannot use us. Some of us are just afraid of what this could cost us. Sometimes people say to me, What is giving your life to Jesus like? What is it like to put your faith in God? I always say, it's a little like jumping. It's a little like throwing yourself into the arms of Jesus and trusting him, trusting him for your salvation, trusting him for your future, trusting him for the provision, trusting him for your life. And some of you have never done that. And maybe today would be the day where you would say, you know what? There's a lot of things that have been leading up to this, but today is my day to jump. Because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, it's time for me to jump. We're going to pray in just a moment and uh, give you an opportunity in the stillness of this moment just to be be saying, God, I want to jump, I want to give my life to you. Now, others of you find yourself resonating with the disappointment. The unforgettable truth I gotta give you is that the story's not over. Some of you find yourself wrestling with doubt. God wants to take your doubt and replace it with belief and replace it with hope. If you doubt, you are in good company. Jesus uses people who doubt. If you have failed, and you carry a level of shame with you because of something that you see as big or something that is small, whatever it is, God uses people who have failed and who have made mistakes, and He puts His grace and His kindness as trophies on display. Some of you find yourself afraid. And God wants to give you courage. You see, the way that this all closes in in John 20, verse 21, is Jesus says this. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, we're gonna close by, I, I just wanna pray. I wanna pray that we would receive the Holy Spirit. I wanna pray that God would send us and if you find yourself in a season in your life, and I'm gonna tell you that, that in seasons of my life, I've been in every one of these four, sometimes multiple of them. But if that is you, if you find yourself in a season of disappointment or doubt or failure or fear, I wanna just invite you to stand and I wanna pray that God would fill you with the Spirit. So let's stand, if that's you, in any of those categories anyone else wants to join those that are standing I'd encourage you to do that let's pray first of all God I want to pray for those who want to jump by putting their trust and their faith and their hope in you thank you God that you sent Jesus to take the full punishment of sin upon himself so that he could conquer and deal with sin and deliver us and set us free. I pray that those even in this moment would be making a decision. They would be turning to heaven and saying, Jesus, come fill my life. It's time for me to jump. For those who are in a season of disappointment, some things have happened and it is not what they wanted. I pray that you would remind them that the story is not done and that you actually chase down people who are so discouraged they're walking away and you call them back in to the movement of the kingdom of God. For those who are doubting God, I pray that instead of feeling shame, that they would feel a sense of calling, you use people who wrestle with doubt. I pray that you would take the doubt and replace it with faith and hope and belief. Energize them, God. God, for those who have failed in, in big areas, in small areas, whatever it may be, the shame that they're carrying, God, I pray that you would set them free. I pray that they would forgive themselves. I pray that they would not have this sense of feeling like second class Christians because of certain things that they've done, but that they would remember that you use people who have made mistakes and who have failed. In fact, you put them on display. For those who are afraid, God, of what this may cost them, I pray that you may fill them with courage and as they're standing on the edge, God, that they may indeed jump. I pray that that would be true all over Northridge, all over the Detroit area, God. May the church rise up. May people be embracing the adventure that you are calling us to. And that's our prayer and we pray this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. On the way in, you received a program that's like this. And if you made a decision today, or you wanna communicate with the church in any kind of way, you wanna get more connected, you want someone to follow up with you, or you made a decision to to jump, to follow Jesus, I would encourage you to fill out this top part here. You can check the box and you can hand it in on the way out. Or if you're watching online, you can... Uh, Follow up with the instructions that are online there as well, and someone from Northridge will will follow up with you. Uh, Thanks so much for having me. It has been an absolute joy to be with you. God is calling us to a great adventure. Let's jump into it. Thank you.